Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of I Pledge Allegiance. This week, I'm super excited to bring on Esteban, the founder and CEO of TRM Labs. Esteban's a longtime friend. I've seen him building in crypto since early 2018. This is really an opportunity, I think, for us to hear directly from Esteban about their journey over the past few years, what they're working on today, and other burning questions that you guys may have as crypto protocol creators and participants. So really excited to have Esteban today. He's a good friend. So without further ado, welcome Esteban. Thanks so much, Derek. It's great to be here. Thank you. So I guess just from a high level, I think lots of people have seen TRM Labs in various press releases and Twitter announcements, but could you summarize what TRM Labs today, like what do you guys actually do and work on? So TRM is a blockchain intelligence company. And what that means is we analyze data from 25 different blockchains today, over a million different digital assets. And we blend that with advanced analytics and proprietary threat intelligence in order to detect fraud and financial crime. So things like ransomware, terrorist financing, money laundering, investment schemes, hacks, that kind of stuff. And what we do is we take that data and we deliver it to financial institutions, to crypto businesses, protocols, law enforcement, so that they can either A, protect their platforms from being used to launder money or facilitate financial crime, or actually go out and, and actually combat it directly in the case of law enforcement. We launched out of YC in 2019, and we've been growing quickly. Now we're serving many of the leading crypto businesses, some of the largest financial institutions in the world, and law enforcement. I mean, you guys haven't always been focused on this area of the market, right? If you're comfortable sharing, I, be like, I believe the acronym TRM Labs actually stands for something different. Could you walk me through the journey over the past few years and how you guys started originally? Totally. And not a lot of people know this. We actually started as a gaming company. My co-founder Rahul and I, we were living together in San Francisco. We really loved crypto. And we kind of started with this idea of, okay, how do we get crypto in the hands of billions of people? And the first idea we had was, well, games, like games are really great distribution mechanisms. We should build a game that people really want to use. And then that's how we're going to get a wallet on every phone. That's how we're going to get crypto in the hands of billions of people. We started building the game and we iterated, it ended up turning into like this NFT style game. One of the first problems we encountered was fraud. I got really excited one night. I was sitting on the couch and I see the usage of this application, like the downloads just started to spike. And I got really excited until I realized something really interesting, which was that all of these accounts that were being created were registering with the same Ethereum address. And I realized like, oh, well, someone's just creating a bunch of accounts in order to farm more tokens or kind of game the system in that way. And so we did a little mini hackathon in our apartment where we said, let's build an analytics tool that can help us essentially detect this type of activity. Long story short, we were way better analytics builders than we were game developers. There was a month when we were listening to a podcast on how I built this, and they were talking about the Slack story. And I don't know if you know this, but Slack actually started as a gaming company, and they built this internal messaging tool. And at some point, the game was failing. They said, why don't we pivot to this messaging tool? So we were listening to this, and we kind of looked at each other, and we were like, is this our Slack moment? Like, is this when we need to pivot to this internal tool that is actually potentially more useful than the game itself. So we ran an experiment. We approached some of our friends that were building in crypto, including a stablecoin company, a DeFi company, and others. And people were really excited. It was when we showed them our dashboard, it was the first time 
they had ever seen metrics about on-chain activity. So we were showing them things like, here's how many users you have in crypto, and here's how that number is growing over time. Here's segmentation in terms of like, are people that are using your protocol really interested in DeFi? Are they really interested in stable coins? That kind of stuff. And there was just so much interest there that we really leaned into that. And we said, okay, let's build an analytics company. The first year of being an analytics company, we were a little bit of a solution looking for a problem. Like we were iterating between different things. And my co-founder Rahul, for him, mission has always been really important. And so he wouldn't let us settle on an idea until it really, I think, spoke to us personally. And it was something that we were really passionate about. And so in the beginning, we weren't really passionate about just like general purpose analytics software. And what ended up happening is one of our customers was using TRM, which stands for Token Relationship Management. They were using this as a way to better understand how many addresses were holding their token and how is that growing over time. And the user of TRM sat next to the compliance person. And the compliance person looked at that and said, well, we need to monitor, we need to meet our regulatory requirements around anti-money laundering. Can you use this software to do that? At the time, we didn't know much about AML at all, but like any entrepreneur, we started researching it and we tailored the technology to detect money laundering specifically and fraud and financial crime. And so that's really kind of how we got pulled into the space. It was about six months of iteration for the vision to really come into focus. We started getting cold inbounds from law enforcement and from banks that were investigating fraud and financial crime, whether it was a hack or in one instance, people selling stolen credit cards on the dark web and soliciting payments in crypto. And this vision of like, how can we use data science to build a safer crypto economy? Like how can we build a safer financial system for billions of people? That really started to come into focus then that mission spoke a lot to Rahul and I, and that's when we decided to plant the flag and make that the company's mission. And I think about like companies, your first order of business is to build something that people want. Like you can't actually have a company if you don't do that. The second order of business is it has to be something that you can deliver profitably. Otherwise your business won't be sustainable. And so you have to be able to make money from whatever it is that you're offering or putting out into the world. And then the third thing is like, is it something that really inspires you? And is it something that a mission that you can really get behind? And so when we found this market of how do we use on-chain data to build more security and safety, that's when we decided we're going to stop iterating at a really macro level and just start building the best product we can. Super interesting context on the original Genesis idea and how you almost backed into finding product market fit through a tangential use case and how that has really become the main focus, obviously. I will say like when we started the company, we kind of knew that going in, like we knew that the right strategy was to be highly adaptable and to iterate. The reality is in 2018, people say, tell entrepreneurs all the time, build something that you want. In 2018, the industry was so early that we didn't know what the problems were. And so the first step was like, let's just start building and let's discover new problems that haven't been discovered before. And that I think was really helpful. So when we were building the game and we were building analytics, like I think we knew in the back of our head the entire time, like this isn't going to be the idea, but by building and by being in the market, we're going to be exposed to new types of problems and we're going to find problems that need to be solved. Yeah. It's almost like 
in the early days, the most valuable thing is just increasing the surface area of customers and ideas that you can be exposed to. So as the customers are iterating and themselves and figuring out the new challenges that they have as they scale, you can adapt and fit their needs and you're alongside them. Totally. So I guess to dive to the product, I think there's a lot of angles to talk about the product from, but I think at the very core is the on-chain data itself. What is your guys' approach to on-chain data and sorting, tagging, filtering through it? So you start, obviously, like you can think about it as this cake. The base layer of the cake is the raw blockchain data. And the next layer is like linking transactions to risk categories. So saying, okay, this transaction is associated with terrorist financing. This transaction is associated with a ransomware attack, or this transaction is associated with a hack. And what you end up with is essentially this map of this dynamic picture of fraud and financial crime in Web3. And organizations can use that data to make their own products safer. So for instance, if you're a financial institution or you're a crypto business and exchange, you have these anti-money laundering regulatory requirements. And you have an interest in making sure that the Bitcoin that's being deposited is not being sourced from an investment scheme or investment fraud or a hack. And so what you would do is you would send that transaction hash to TRM and say, hey, is this transaction hash associated with those activities or are those funds ultimately coming from those categories? And then based on the organization's own risk tolerance and their own compliance program, they'll make a decision as to whether to allow those funds to enter their platform or to not. So that's how crypto businesses and financial institutions use our product. We have a what's known as a transaction monitoring solution and a wallet screening solution that they use to monitor the transactions that are coming in and out of their platform. And this is stuff that exists in the traditional fiat world, the traditional financial system. There are companies that offer transaction monitoring and sanction screening solutions. But the only difference is instead of monitoring an ACH deposit or a cash withdrawal from an ATM, now you're just monitoring like a crypto transaction. That's the difference. With In the public sector, law enforcement uses TRM to visually trace the flow of funds on the blockchain. And so if there is a hack, the immediate question is, well, where did those funds ultimately go and like where do they cash out? And we provide like a graphical user interface where you can search a transaction and literally trace out the flow of funds and conduct these types of on-chain investigations. Just to talk about hacks, since you mentioned it last, I've seen TRM mentioned as a partner to various protocols. I believe Nomad partnered with TRM for funds recovery after their exploit. What services do you provide for protocols broadly? I know you mentioned the law enforcement and graph visualization, but in terms of protocols themselves, is there anything else that falls under Hex? There's kind of two buckets. I think one is like software and API data solutions, and then the other is the services. So on the software side to a DeFi protocol, what we would offer is the ability to do sanction screening, for instance. So the idea here is like, actually, this is actually an important topic. When you think about compliance requirements in crypto, there's actually a lot of different laws that companies and individuals need to comply with. There's anti-money laundering laws, and that's generally applicable to money services businesses or financial institutions. And the idea there is like, you got to monitor your transactions, make sure that your platform isn't being used to launder proceeds of financial crime. And those fall under what people call AML CFT, like anti-money laundering counter terrorist financing. There's a second 
set of laws known as like sanctions laws. And that's a lot more black and white. Like that's any individual entity cannot transact with those entities. So it's less like, hey, monitor your transactions and just detect if you're doing this stuff. It's much more prescriptive in terms of don't transact with these sanctioned entities or these sanctioned addresses. And sanctions laws apply to not just businesses, but to individuals as well. And so what a lot of DeFi front ends and protocols are doing are implementing sanction screening at the front end level. So it's saying, okay, when somebody connects their wallet or their address to my front end, how do I screen that to make sure that it hasn't been sanctioned by one of the sanctioning bodies that we want to subscribe to? That's the Office of Foreign Asset Control in the US, OFAC, or other sanctioning bodies in other countries. One of the misconceptions is that TRM is blocking addresses. And that's not really how it works. I mean, what we do is we have this database of addresses that have been sanctioned by sanctioning authorities and organizations, DeFi front ends or protocols can reach out to that database and say, hey, is this address or is this transaction listed there? And depending on the answer, they can then make a decision in terms of whether they want to block or not that address. Every organization that uses DRM can set their own risk configuration. And so you could, for instance, say, I only want to block addresses that have directly been listed by OFAC. Or you could say, I want to block addresses that have received funds from sanctioned entities as well, because I want to mitigate sanctions exposure. And so TRM ultimately like provides data and then organizations use that data to make decisions about what addresses or entities they want to enable on their platform. That's an interesting clarification on the last one. So just TRM, like the data populated and the address tagging, the information comes directly from third parties that have formed opinions and released sanctions or something similar directly. And TRM, you guys don't investigate the addresses yourselves and form prescriptive opinions directly? Or is that the right way to think about it? No, I would think about it as like TRM is a data provider. Like we don't have the ability to block any addresses or connecting transactions. People look to TRM as a data provider. And what TRM really does is we source from many different data sources information about addresses. And so that could be, hey, this address appears on a sanctions list. It could also be that this address was used by a ransomware group to request payment, or this address was where the hacker of a protocol like sent the funds. And so when folks send an address to our API, we'll return back a response that says this address was associated with a hack, or this address was associated with a ransomware attack. And then people use that data to make a decision. One of the things that's neat about TRM is we will expose essentially where is this data coming from? And so people can make a decision in terms of what sources do they want to include in their decision-making process. Some firms will say, I'm only going to block a transaction if the designation or the association with sanctions is coming directly from the OFAC list. And I actually want to see on the Treasury's website that that address has been listed. Some organizations might say, well, I would also block addresses that are associated with those addresses because of like their transactional history. And so you can think of TRM as like a mapping company, like we'll surface the data that we're seeing, 
but then ultimately companies use that data to make their own decisions. Esteban, you mentioned the different types of transactions and address tagging. It sounds like there's a spectrum from most serious to potentially more in the gray zone, like the most serious being addresses that have been directly mentioned and sanctioned by someone like OFAC, less serious, still pretty serious, but maybe after that, it's like ransomware and hex. And then there's, I'm assuming, overwhelming majority of addresses in the system in this map are ones that are in a gray zone where maybe there are some questionable signs, but the level of conviction is not super, the level of conviction is less high than the other categories. Could you go over what that spectrum looks like? So there's a lot of different dimensions on the map. So like if you think about Google Maps, you know how you can toggle between street view and satellite view and roads view. And you could also decide whether you want to show trees or show lakes or show buildings or not. On Google Maps, you have a lot of different dimensions and it's similar in blockchain intelligence. Like there's different dimensions through which you can look at on-chain activity. So one dimension is like, all right, is this transaction, has it been associated with any categories, whether that's ransomware or sanctions or terrorist financing? And so you can think about that as like, that's what people call attribution. So is this address attributed or associated with any of these known categories? Do we know that it's associated with an exchange? Do we know that it's associated with a darknet marketplace? Notably, attribution isn't used to associate addresses to individuals. And in fact, it's like really difficult to do that. Entities like an exchange leaves a pretty distinctive fingerprint and footprint on the blockchain. Entities like a $100 million hack leave a really notable fingerprint on the blockchain. Individuals, an order of magnitude difference in terms of like the fingerprint. And so we're really focused on attributing transactions and addresses to entities such as these darknet markets or exchanges or other entities. The other dimension that you can think about it is like risk. So is this address low risk? Is it medium risk or is it high risk? And TRM has a really configurable risk engine. And what that means is that each organization can tune the risk engine to specify what they consider high risk or low risk. I'll give you a good example, like gambling. Transactions or addresses that are associated with like gambling services. To some organizations in certain jurisdictions, low risk. It's like, doesn't even matter. In fact, don't even show it. And they'll just literally just turn it off in the risk engine. So you wouldn't even see that label on the map. For some organizations in other jurisdictions, it's high risk or it's medium risk. They do care about it. And so that's the second layer that sits on top of the attribution is like the risk layer. And that's very configurable. So people can specify what type of activity they consider to be medium risk or high risk. There was a time when like, I think mixers were just considered high risk carte blanche. And crypto has changed a lot. I think we've seen more and more people use mixers just for financial privacy reasons. And like the sentiment in the industry has evolved to where like it's not in and of itself risky if you're using a mixer. So that's one example of the risk layer evolving. And the most important point there is like different organizations are going to have different settings on the risk engine in terms of like what types of attribution they consider more or less risky. Let me pause there. Any questions on that? Double clicking on the DeFi front end stuff now. I think a lot of folks have seen the DeFi front ends like Uniswap or UIDX or Aave leverage the TRM product. I think, frankly, this is a very important topic given that 
you guys are directly selling to businesses and primarily a B2B company, but a lot of end users, that's the first time they're really seeing a TRM as a company appear. So could you talk a bit about how these DeFi protocols are leveraging the mapping, what their risk tolerance levels are, and how you see that evolving? So a lot of DeFi frontends are using TRM for sanction screening. And so what they'll do is when an address connects to their front end or looks to, to execute a transaction, they will pass that address to TRM. Only the address, like no other identifiers, it's just that public key to TRM. And then TRM will send back the risk indicators on that address, if there is any at all. 99% of the time, there isn't anything. But the type of risk indicators would include things like, has the address been associated with any of these categories that the organization has specified they care about? Has the address transacted with those categories that the organization has specified that they care about? Or has it ultimately like received funds, you know, even if it goes through many hops? The interesting thing is like in each of those dimensions, we call ownership risk, counterparty risk, and indirect risk. It's fully configurable by the organization. So some folks might say like, I only care about ownership risk. I only want to get information back if the address is itself associated with sanctions or terrorist financing or whatever it might be. Others might say, well, I don't want my DeFi front end to facilitate like someone laundering the proceeds of a hack. And so if an address has received more than $1,000 from a hack, include that in the response. And so people will configure the TRM risk engine based on like, what kind of information is most relevant to them and based on their own risk tolerance and their own objectives. Totally makes sense. And on this, while we're on it, I think this is a topic that a lot of folks have a strong opinion about, that crypto fundamentally is and should be a permissionless technology that anyone can access and use. And... I think they think of any kind of filtering or censorship of really any kind as something that it should be avoided because it makes the system less open. It makes it less accessible. It discriminates against certain segments. And I think it's like the reality is that anyone that's worked at a crypto company knows that there are certain rules and regulations they must comply with in their jurisdiction. So I think it's somewhat easy to write off some of those concerns. But at the same time, I do think it is a critical part of the crypto ethos that stuff remains as open and as decentralized as it can be without, again, sacrificing other things. So I guess curious just how you feel. I'm sure you've seen some of this rhetoric. I'm sure you wish you could address some of it and talk about how you guys feel and how you guys think about it. What are your just general thoughts? I think it's really important. Blockchains and this crypto financial system won't be successful if we don't adequately protect consumer privacy, if we don't prevent corporate and nation state espionage. We need to be able to reduce the risk of data breaches. And so it's like really important that people have privacy on chain and that they can freely transact. That's one policy objective. Like if we're trying to design a crypto economy that really achieves its goals, that's definitely one policy objective. I think the other policy objective is security. Security is just fundamental in order for crypto to reach mainstream adoption and to reach its potential. Like 
today, we're tracking a dozen different what we call like mega fraud investment schemes. So these are investment schemes that have received more than 100 million in cryptocurrency payments in 2022. We are tracking over 2 billion in crypto that has been stolen in hacks in 2022, 95% of which is in DeFi hacks. That ecosystem or that environment is not one that's going to be popular to the next billion users. Crypto right now, the demographics of crypto generally is a population that has a higher risk tolerance. There's a research done by this university in Austria, the University of Innsbruck, and they found that one in every three hodlers, so people who are like the most security conscious, the most sophisticated crypto investors have lost crypto at some point due to like a stolen public key or stolen private key. And that one in three crypto users across the board, regardless of demographic or background, have lost money due to a financial investment loss or a scam or something. And so when I think about people who aren't diehard crypto native, people that at one point are going to need to come into this new financial system, it's hard for me to reconcile like the magnitude of the hacks that we're seeing and the magnitude, the size of losses through investment fraud with that being a financial system that billions of people are going to want to engage with and participate in. So I think security, like we have a lot of work to do to build more trust and safety in the ecosystem. And trust and safety is a chain. Like there are things that happen throughout the life cycle. There's things of like, how do we make protocols more secure themselves? How do we make exchanges more secure themselves? But there's things like, how do you remediate? Like when there is a hack or there is fraud, how do you make victims whole again? And how do you create the right deterrence for people? Deterrence is a real, actually effective thing. We see it in the Nomad hack. In the first month after the Nomad hack, over $40 million has been returned by white hats and gray hats. And arguably that's because like, it's really difficult to successfully launder money in crypto because it is possible to investigate it. And so I just come back to this idea that like, I'm really excited about some of the advancements we're seeing in terms of privacy enhancing technologies that can be applied at the protocol layer, at the middleware layer, and at the application level that are going to give people more choice in terms of what's the right level of privacy for them. But I also do fundamentally think that for crypto to achieve its potential, we do need tools to build trust and safety. That's just a requirement. I think that's the kind of the first point. The second point is the beauty of crypto and the beauty of this like open permissionless financial system is that people are going to have choices about what that right trade-off is for them. We are on 25 different blockchains. Those are 25 different experiments. And then within those blockchains, there's hundreds and in some cases, hundreds of thousands of different smart contracts or protocols that are being developed. And each of those are experiments in terms of like, what is the right level or trade-off between security and privacy? And consumers are going to vote with their feet and their wallets in terms of what that right trade-off is. So for you, for somebody, it's really, really important to have maximally private transactions on chain. There will be blockchains and there will be DeFi protocols that it is completely, completely opaque. And it's buyer beware. Like if that gets hacked, if those funds get lost, maybe it's not possible to investigate or recoup the funds, but that's like one package that consumers can choose. And then there's going to be other 
packages where maybe there is a little bit more traceability, maybe there is more transparency in the transactions, and that comes with some benefits, but also some costs, but ultimately people will have that choice. Yeah, it's a really good breakdown, and I totally agree. I think, again, at the end of the day, there's many different entities and people building this technology, and it's up to them how they want to provide the end service. There's always going to be a demand for completely opaque and completely private chains. I think there's lots of very valid and ethical use cases for that. As the level of privacy increases across crypto as a whole, how do you see TRM's role evolving? So our mission is to build a safer financial system from billions of people. And crypto is evolving so fast that like we just have to be highly adaptable in order to achieve that mission if we want to be around for more than a decade. So I think some of the most exciting companies in the space are those that are really sitting at the intersection of privacy and compliance and asking this question of what are ways that you can build trust and build greater security, even in a world where there's a lot of on-chain privacy. So for instance, like, could you use zero knowledge proofs to make attestations on the blockchain that an address has passed KYC checks with so-and-so entity or something? Does that digital passport then enable that address to go out and transact on DeFi protocols in a totally zero knowledge way? I think that's incredibly exciting. This is like a very fast growing and evolving part of crypto is this growing use of privacy enhancing technologies to achieve data protection and privacy goals while simultaneously like enabling the security guarantees that we have on blockchains like Bitcoin and Ethereum. Totally agreed. I think the more optionality to users and the more choice they have on these design decisions, I think the better overall. On the topic of hacks, we've talked about it a little bit already today, but I think lots of people have seen the coverage of hacks and have read analysis of how they happen and the different smart contract attack vectors. I don't think people have a great idea of the post-hack process. Can you walk me through, if you're a protocol that's gotten exploited in whatever manner, what does the following days or weeks or months look like? Like what should, hopefully people listening to this podcast never have to apply that knowledge, but what has your experience been? So NIST, the National Institute of Standards and Technology, they have like a recommended four-step process for incident response. And this was originally designed in the cybersecurity realm, but I actually think it's a helpful framework to think about incident response in crypto. Those four steps is prepare, detection and analysis, containment, eradication, and recovery, and then your post-incident activity. So let's walk through each of those. On the prepare side, protocols and exchanges are doing things like performing risk assessments, they're doing security audits, they are creating incident response plans, they're lining up the right partners in the event that they have an incident. And so typically, the types of partners that you'll see firms either have on retainer or engage with as part of their preparation is like, we see custodians, so we see them have a custodian. And one of the things that happens in a hack is you need an address that people can send funds back to if you're negotiating with the attacker to send funds back to. And oftentimes, like if it is a DeFi protocol, the easiest thing to do is just have like an address with a custodian that they can send funds to. So people will often do that. 
The other one is like crypto incident response. And so if there's a hack, being able to respond and to manage relationships with law enforcement or to help make those connections to trace the flow of funds and ultimately like help with asset recovery. And that's one of the things that TRM does. And then also like your legal services is the other piece. In terms of like detection and analysis. So, okay, you've done the homework. How do you actually monitor the addresses or smart contracts and network traffic to detect if there has been an incidence? And how do you make sure that you're collecting any evidence throughout that process? So what logs exist, that kind of stuff. In terms of post-incident activity, how do you contain the attack? So does the smart contract have like a kill switch or does it have any way to pause activity while you figure out what's going on? Making patches so that way people cannot continue to exploit the smart contract is obviously really important. Depending on what got hacked, whether it's an exchange or a protocol, there's this element of like, how do we restore services or operations as quickly as possible? And then you've got the post-incident activity. So once you've detected it, once you've contained it and like recovered or resumed operations, there's, okay, how do we actually do asset recovery? So how do we investigate, trace the flow of funds? Are we going to set up a bounty program? Are we going to decide to work with law enforcement in, in the investigation? All of that happens. Finally, you've got the postmortem. One of the things that I think is really important throughout this process is communication. In the cybersecurity realm, if you have a data breach, people will always recommend being very proactive in your communication. But you get a little bit of breathing room because arguably you're the only one who has visibility into your logs. On the blockchain, at least right now, like most transactions are happening on these transparent open ledgers and people will detect things sometimes even before you might detect things. And so it's really important to be like proactive in your communication. It doesn't work if like it's, oh, well, I hope no one will find out. It's an open public ledger. People are going to find out. So <laughs> The importance of communication is elevated in the crypto space. Taking a step back and looking at TRM's present and future, how do you see the product evolving? Like, are there any things that you're comfortable sharing today about future directions you're thinking of or other customer segments that you can potentially serve? So historically, we were focused on serving. We started with crypto businesses. So crypto businesses have the anti-money laundering and sanctions regulatory requirements. They have an interest in ensuring that their platforms aren't used to launder the proceeds of financial crime. And they have and continue to use TRM transaction monitoring and wallet screening in order to help with that. We then expanded with financial institutions. So over the last five years, we've seen this tsunami of traditional banks and payment companies and fintechs enter the crypto space and saying, how do we offer crypto as an asset class to our customers? How do we create potentially even our own assets, our own tokenized assets? And we're serving them with similar solutions for transaction monitoring and wallet screening. We're also serving the public sector. So helping regulators, law enforcement be able to not only investigate an attack when it does occur, but understand larger trends in terms of, hey, we're seeing a spike in pig butchering scams, or we're seeing a spike in ransomware attacks. Those types of insights are really valuable. If we take a step back, like our mission is to build a safer financial system for billions of people. I think one area of the market that has historically been underserved is users like consumers. And so in May, 
we launched chainabuse.com. And it is a free website where anyone can go and use it as a resource to protect themselves from scams, fraud, and other forms of risks. Basically, it's a website where anyone can file a report on and learn about crypto hacks, scams, and fraudulent activity. So you can go there if you are the victim of an investments fraud or if you've been hacked, you can file a report with that address. You can also search addresses or domains proactively. And so if you're thinking about participating, maybe there's like a new NFT project or maybe there's an investment scheme that you're evaluating, you can search it in chain abuse and see if it's been previously reported as potentially fraudulent. And then there's also collaborative features baked in. So people will comment and engage with the community on these reports. We launched this in May. We've had over a quarter of a million reports now are live on chain abuse across many different blockchains. And I think that's an area of like increasing importance is how do we educate people and how we provide tools for them to just make better and safer decisions on chain. I'm just checking out the chain abuse site and I see the scam glossary, which has over 20 different categories of potential scams and, and exploits in crypto. So definitely a pretty robust database of categories. I didn't realize there was so many things. And it's interesting. Like, I think what we're seeing, the first era of like what you might call crypto crime was a lot of things that we had seen before in traditional finance just being like ported over to crypto. We're now in this like secondary era where you're getting really crypto native types of attacks. So I'll give you one example. This idea of like a drainer smart contract, these malicious smart contracts that are designed to drain all of the crypto from the wallet that is calling it or interacting with it. Like that's a very crypto native attack. And not only like have we seen those types of attacks like increase, but we're even seeing like the commercialization of those. So we're seeing what we call drainer templates as a service. If you go on dark web forums, there will be like cybercrime forums where they are selling pre-built drainer kits like that target NFT enthusiasts, or people might sell compromised credentials for Discord forums. And so this is something that we had seen in the ransomware space. In ransomware, it used to be that the person who developed the ransomware software was also the person who was actually executing the attack. And we've seen this cottage industry emerge where there's more specialization. There's like the ransomware developer, and then there's groups that will actually purchase or license that software to go out and execute ransomware attacks. That's called ransomware as a service. We're now seeing that same thing happen in like crypto native types of attacks, such as these drainer smart contracts. I mean, I think categorically the sophistication and diversity of attacks on consumers has grown. What does that mean for the end user? What advice or tips would you have for them in terms of avoiding is it a mindset thing? Is it using specific tools? Is it staying and doing your own research? It's probably a combination of all these things, but again, curious how you think about it. That's the challenge that crypto faces right now. It's hard to be safe on chain right now. The advice that we give to people is it's like this 10 step process. It's okay. Well, don't interact with an NFT project unless you're interacting it with a burner address. And like, well, what's a burner address? Okay, well, what you need to do is like, you need to create a different address. And then you, you know what I mean? So number one, people have to do their research on 
protocols or smart contracts that they're interacting with. Not only because there's like technical risk in terms of is the smart contract malicious, but there's also just the human risk. Is this a rug pull? What is the reputation of the developers who created this thing? There's the classic just risk of wallets and managing your wallet and whether you're choosing to use a hardware wallet or a paper wallet or whatever you choose, they all come with like their own security trade-offs. But I think that's kind of why we get really excited about building infrastructure is like, ultimately, if the way we think about scaling trust and safety in crypto is a list of like 10 steps that people need to take, that's not going to scale to a billion people. But if we can build software that makes it easier for trust and safety controls to be baked into wallets or protocols or services, we think that's a more scalable approach to building security and safety in crypto. So TRM's building products for both traditional crypto businesses and protocols, but also the public sector, governments and agencies in different jurisdictions. Could you talk a bit about how selling and building products for them is similar and also different? So I think on the similar side, both the public sector and the private sector are interested in data about fraud and financial crime in crypto. The crypto business wants to make sure that they're not receiving hacked funds and the public sector wants to be able to investigate a hack and trace the flow of funds. So in that sense, there are similarities. And I think both segments care a lot about the capabilities that TRM has. So like we were the first cross-chain analytics company. And what that means is that we're able to analyze the flow of funds across blockchains, giving folks this like really holistic view of activity in crypto across 25 different blockchains. So that's valuable regardless of what type of customer you are. I think the biggest difference is probably just in the go-to-market, the way a crypto business will call you and say, hey, I need transaction monitoring or I need a wallet screening solution. And I want to make a decision on Thursday (laughs) with the public sector. Obviously it's a little bit more of a longer process. And so that's just kind of the nature of the go-to-market in those two fronts. Totally makes sense. I imagine the public sector to be a bit slower and perhaps less knowledgeable and requires a bit more of an education process, whereas the crypto native companies and protocols don't need as much education and probably have a bit more of an idea of how they want to use the platform and what they're optimizing for. Yeah. Well, I think Maybe that is interesting to call out. Ultimately, like there's a philosophical decision about what levers we use to increase financial integrity. Ultimately, I think that there's this philosophical question about how does society make a financial system more safe? Historically, the Financial Action Task Force, which is the global body that sets AML guidelines for many member countries around the world, when they talk about the policy objectives of an AML system, it's usually talked about in two fronts. Number one is like, how do you prevent bad money from entering the financial system? And number two is how do you actually investigate financial crime when it happens? But like, number one is like, are those the right objectives? And then number two is like, how do you best accomplish those objectives? So in terms of like preventing bad money from entering the system, there's really two models that you can use. One is a deny list model and one is an allow list model. So the deny list is to say, hey, we want to explicitly block funds associated with terrorist financing or associated with sanctions from using our protocol or 
coming into my bank or coming into this exchange. That's like the deny list model. The allow list model is like, all right, I've got this group of trusted addresses that I've vetted and that I am okay with using my protocol or my bank. And like, those are generally like the two models that you can use if the goal is to prevent proceeds of financial crime from entering or using the financial system. That's a great breakdown. I think the deny list concept would be something like, again, existing DeFi front ends that filter in certain addresses and block them from accessing. And then AveArc would be an example of allow list where they conduct KYC and only allow certain participants to access the platform. I guess just, That's exactly. yeah, just thinking out loud, long-term, I think it's difficult to make these kinds of predictions, but like, I wonder if we'll end up, I think we're starting to see this where it's like, there's basically two categories of ways to use crypto. There's one regulated compliant way to use crypto. And then there's classes of protocols that are perhaps less regulated, less compliant, less transparency, but maybe more privacy. So I think it's unclear to me how these two categories will interact with each other and what that'll even look like. But I think it's clear that the pieces are in place. You have US-based companies and protocols that, again, no one wants to go to prison or pay a huge fine. And then you have categories of builders and operators that maybe are willing to lean into the risk curve. Maybe they're anonymous or located elsewhere. I think we'll see bifurcation over the next decade. I think that's absolutely right. And I think you will see more and more experimentation in terms of like, at what level do you apply certain controls? At what level in the stack do you want to have deny lists or do you want to have allow lists? And it's not even just like at what level in the stack from like a protocol middleware application layer. There's that debate. But also part in terms of where in the crypto economy. If you think about the existence of deny lists or allow lists today, the one thing is literally passports. You are free and no one, you don't have to ask anyone for permission when you walk down the street to the grocery store. But if you want to go from country A to country B, there is customs that you have to go through. They'll check your passport. And so I think we're going to see the same thing in the crypto economy, which is like, Maybe perhaps like once you have an account on a particular chain or particular layer two, maybe you can use that address across these services totally freely. But maybe like if you're creating a net new address, you have to go through a process, a KYC process or something. I'm just spitballing. Like that might be one way that we see this is like there's not going to necessarily be total privacy, total censorship, like do what you will. Similarly, like there's not going to be total transparency because we do have data protection and consumer privacy goals. And so we'll just see like variance in terms of what level is it applied and what parts of the crypto economy are certain controls applied. Cool. I think that's it for mine. Yeah. Well, thanks a lot, Esteban, for coming on. And this was a great conversation about a lot of topics from TRM's early history, you and Rahul's journey since foundation and how you guys have iterated. And... I think it was also very helpful to hear your honest thoughts on not just TRM's product and what you're building, but where the industry's going. I think a lot of people have seen TRM's name in various products and only have bits and pieces of the whole picture. So hopefully this podcast can fill in some of the gaps and 
clarify, I think, exactly what your guys' role is and what you guys are providing for companies and what you guys aren't touching. So thanks again for coming on and really appreciate it. Thank you. I really appreciate it.